0: This episode of Year One, we speak to Nora Denuza, founder and president of Pitcher, a brand strategy and growth consultancy for small businesses. We speak about business development skills, prospect qualifying criteria, payment terms, the importance of your brand, outsourcing what you suck at. This is a very practical advice-based episode, so sit back, buckle up, and enjoy the show. <music> Welcome to Year One, hosted by me, Kloppers, and my good friend, Satish Barna. On Year One, we speak to early-stage founders, business owners, and entrepreneurs about the highs and lows of early years, the challenges and rewards, and everything else in between. So, without any further ado, let's get into this week's conversation. Nora, welcome to Year One. Satish and I are really thrilled to have you on our podcast today, and I'm going to dive straight in with the first question, right? And before we start talking about your business, we want to get to know the person behind the business. So what's your story? Tell us a little bit about Nora's upbringing, the things that have shaped you to be the person that you are today.
1: Ooh, we're going way back, like way, way back. (laughs) Okay. My upbringing, I grew up in a suburb of Northern Massachusetts. So North of Boston, my, let's see, my parents, so they're very liberal. So liberal white lady (laughs) in the house. So, yeah, I, I grew up going. I went to public school, public high school, and then I went to Pitt undergrad. So that's how I got to Pittsburgh. And I've now been in Pittsburgh for over 20 years, which is crazy to say. Wow. So that's my like. Be- how I began in life, and then I got into working for advertising agencies, and that was my whole background before becoming an entrepreneur in 2021. Was working for independent ad agencies.
2: What were you doing for them? There's so many different roles in ad agencies. I got into it after was about 50 years old, and I was like, "Ooh, thank God it's some digital in these companies." But when I first <laughs> met them, they're like, "Below the belt, above the, the bell. like threshold." I'm like, "So where, where was your entry point?"
1: Well, my entry point was like account management or client service. So that's where I started, you know, did the whole like got out of college, did an internship, internship, became an account executive, then became an account manager. So my first agency was called FSC. It was one of those like three or four letters of like three white, three white men that started an advertising agency as very, very mad men. It was Flaherty, Sable and Carol. so FSC. So I was there for about four years and it was what we would call a boutique style of agency, like. 10, 15, 20 people pretty small. So in that kind of agency, it was actually a great starting place because you get to do a little bit of everything. Like, yeah, my title was account executive, but they would be like, Hey, can you write copy for the back of this bag of tortilla chips? Hey, can you like do some research on this veterinarian project? It's like, sure. Like I'll call a hundred people. I'll go do this research. I'll write copy. Like you just do a little bit of everything. And so that's how I got into doing business development or new business, as we would call it in the agency world. Like no other field calls it new business. So when you say new biz, people are like, what is that? Like it's it's exclusive to agencies, but everywhere else in the world calls it business development or growth. And so I got into doing that. That's like responding to RFPs, like people coming to you inbound and saying, hey, we would love to like hear your proposal on this thing that we need so whether that's just a singular one-off project like a website or a packaging design or if it's something more holistic like our 360 campaign or be our agency of record so i did all those kinds of pitches so what was weird though about that size of agency is that i would write the rfp then i would go and pitch it then if we won it they would be like well nora you know the most about this so you work on it so then i was doing both and so eventually i call it like two sides of the same coin like if you're an account executive or in account management, your client is your client. And if you're a business developer for an agency, the agency is your client. So same job. One's internal, mm-hmm. one's external. But it's very hard to do both at the same time. So eventually, if you're in a place where you're doing both, you have to pick a lane. So eventually, I picked the business development lane and then been in that track for most of my career over 10 years. And then why did you
0: decide to go out on your own,
1: Nora? <laughs> how much time do we have? There were a lot of like (laughs) forces that were like, that were coming in on me. So, okay. So I was at FSC for four years, mostly on paper and account manager. Then I went to another bigger agency from my market called Mark USA. It's now called nine rooftops. And that was where I just picked, picked a lane and it was about 150, 200 people. So like in New York, that would be a small agency, but in Pittsburgh, that was one of the largest. So I was working under their SVP of growth or business development, Barb Stefanis Israel. So she was my mentor. So like in an agency that size, you're probably a two person team at an agency sub 100 people. You'd probably be just a solo one person quarterback of the of the pitch team. So I did that for about almost three years. And then I had an opportunity to go to like kind of that Goldilocks, like, OK, if FSC was too small and Mark maybe was like on the bigger side or too big for me, the just right size for me with my third agency, which was called Smith Brothers. And they've since sold to Barclay, which is the largest independent ad agency in the US. So good for them. They sold just this past fall. Yeah. In
2: 2022.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I was with them almost nine years, eight and a half years. But that was like my Goldilocks size. Like I said, they, when I got there, they were maybe 30, 35 people. And then at the largest, we got up to maybe like 65, 70 people. So that was like the sweet spot for me. And their, their run rate, like their size was like, five to 12 million while I was there. So that's like, really my sweet spot where I'm like, okay, we have enough bench strength that we can go after any opportunity, we can staff any opportunity. But like, you can't hide like at a company that size 50 ish people, you cannot hide like everyone has to be an A player or you're out of there. Like in a company that's 200 500 1000 plus, there are a lot of people that suck. That are just kind of hiding in the ranks. I'm just gonna be honest. You've been, you've probably, you've been there. So yeah, I, that kind of like lean size, I really love because like everyone's really contributing, and, and you can see it when they're not.
2: Yeah, no. As you're talking, I'm getting all these flashbacks from my own life. Fell into the agency world by accident. I didn't even know there's a model that existed. I'm a tech guy, and I was like, where can I put some creativity in? And then I had a, I had an opportunity to work for a company that was doing below the belt stuff, very like print on demand sending shopper kits to all these stores for signage and I was like,
1: <laughs> shopper <laughs> it? I
2: was like what is this shopper marketing I don't understand and then the year I got in as digital marketing was starting to come in and e-com and stuff and so I was like wait so we get paid to sit around and think of stuff that's like legit it's possible like, sign me up and that turned into a 12-year agency. And like you, like we were small because we wanted everybody to be as as the best we can hire. And then the guys that purchased me were three times my size. And like, oh, here's what like a chill payday looks like when nobody knows when you're coming in, when you're leaving. It's just not my culture. Mm-hmm. Like as soon as the last check came in, I'm like, I like go. Thank you for the one year. What you know, I did better. Like I feel good. Cause cause as an independent owner, you're always a, like Maybe I'm not running this company properly because I don't have any framework or what skills am I working on. So I learned the arc of biz dev in the agency role, which is very different. So when you like, I'm gonna pick this track, yes, you have the confidence and personality to talk to people, but all of that pitched up, RFP stuff, some I mean, thick skin required in that category, because you know, back then we worked for free, right? Like you, you spend some time yeah. developing something and hope you get it. You still do. People still skills? do. No, yeah, oh, man. yeah. Pitch work
1: People should are, be it should be abolished. But what are yeah, some of the it's other a skills? Big thing, yeah, that's a big thing in our industry. Other skills that you need for business development. Well, yeah, a thick skin for sure, because you're going to lose more than you're going to win. Like most agencies, win rate is like one in four, one in three, if you're good. So like 25 to 33%, right? So that means you're losing a lot more than you're winning. So you definitely have to develop kind of that thick skin, but you also have to develop an ability to ask questions and become like, a, like if you're a curious person, you could be a really good business developer, I think, because you have to dig in. Like when somebody calls you and says, I have this RFP, be like, well, why are you looking for a new agency? Why us? Like, try to find out, like, am I just some sort of straw man in this long list of people, like a cattle call of people they're asking? Or did you actually get referred by someone we know? Do we have any kind of leg up? Do we have absolutely no chance of winning this? Do you have an incumbent? Is the incumbent participating in the review? If they are, what's been going on with them? Like, really ask, like, good questions. People are afraid. People, agencies are so afraid of clients. They are so afraid to ask these questions. Cool. But it's like you are interviewing them just as much as they're interviewing you. And you're gonna work for free on this pitch. So you better know if it's worth your time. And the number one question you have to ask is what is the budget? And my role is no budget, no pitch.
2: Yeah. That's great. I love that. I love that. You know, I I for that thing, man, when when we got purchased, and I come from a digital agency, some. Look at unless somebody got a website or a mobile app budget. These guys are like, no, 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 let's just get in. We'll win them on the creative thing. I'm like, no, we're not going to go spend a week working on a concept and have no idea whether these guys are five bucks or not. Money is an emotional thing for most people, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes you always want you almost want to call it something different, like strawberries and we're less emotional. About it. But exactly. You
1: know, yeah. Just, just you know, talk about the money. Talk about the money. We were so uncomfortable talking about the money. You have to get comfortable talking about it. it and it is it is a waste of your time and theirs. It is actually disrespectful to not talk about the money. People think, oh, it's disrespectful to ask about the money. It's the opposite. You are going to waste their time. They're going to waste yours. What if in their mind, in your mind, the scope that they've asked for is $2 million. And in their mind, it's $200,000. You mean you're going to get all the way down like the road of pitching it two, three months later, mm-hmm. you're going to tell them it costs $2 million. And they're going to say, I thought it was going to be a tenth of that. Why did you not have that conversation like the very first time you were on the phone with them?
2: So just to close off the revenue thing, because I I feel like you and I have evolved in talking about money. But take me back to like first pitch, early days, account person. Because a lot of our listeners are first time founders trying to understand how to be less emotional about a few things, Mm -hmm. but also have the emotion to fuel them. Just getting into the idea of selling and pitching and you're already nervous as hell, like you're biz deving. you got a client on the call. How do you start to set up the question of budget in the early great days?
1: Great question. Great question. Yeah. So there's a few tricks I can teach people and I teach people frequently on how to do this because the first easy question is, okay, yeah, tell me about what what is it that you need? What's this project all about? Ask those good questions. Okay, great. Like, when do you need that done by? Timing, right? Oh, okay. Awesome. You need that in two, three weeks, that's a rush job. You need that in a few months. It's not a rush job, but you kind of figure out, is this a rush or is it not? Like, what kind of priority is this for this person? Okay. So what's your budget? You just ask it in like a conversational tone, right? And then if they go, oh, we don't know. We were hoping you would tell us. We don't know anything about what this stuff costs. That's the number one thing people will say. We have no idea. Oh, really? You don't have any idea? Okay. And I'll be like, well, so what's like your not to exceed amount? Like, what's the amount that like you couldn't get a PO for? Like, that would be too much. Like if you went to finance and asked for a PO, what would be too much? Yeah, you can usually say that. Or I'll be like, what kind of range are we thinking here? And if they can't produce a range, and I'll say, well, in my experience for similar past projects that I've done, it's usually this is usually two hundred to five hundred thousand dollars. This is usually fifty to one hundred thousand dollars. How does that sit with you? How does that sound? Does that sound like something you, you could do? And then they'll usually go, oh, no, actually, we only have $25,000. So, like, they do have a budget. Like, it is BS. They have a budget. They're not telling you because they're fishing and they want to know. They want to know if they can get it for cheaper than they thought. They want to know if they're going to have to pay more than they thought they would have to pay. So this is all a fishing expedition. And you are trying to figure out how much they actually have. So it's it's a game. game. So if you start to think about it like a game... That you're playing instead of this like thing you're so nervous about like who cares like literally who cares like if they don't have enough money for you anyway bye so like don't worry about it like just don't be nervous about it anyway that's the best tip i can give about trying to get the budget out of someone thank you dear
0: Can i just got so you're actually in good company laura i used to be the md of a digital marketing agency you run an agency it's dish owned an agency so I think we are all very much familiar. My people,
1: with the I'm speaking to world. my people. Absolutely
2: Absolutely. are you hinting there's a future agency in the in the in the birth of this podcast? Wow! Well, well, uh... we'll, we'll get we'll get to that. We'll get to that. But okay, I we'll look back,
1: back on this time.
0: It, I want to go back to that pre-qualifying criteria. So, in our agency, we actually asked four questions, and it was: What is your budget? How many people are we competing against? Do you have a detailed brief and do you have a timeline? And the reason we did that was for every one of those questions that they couldn't answer, what happened was the probability decreased of you actually winning the business. So my question to you is outside of the budget, were there any other really important pre-qualifying criteria that you felt you had to get to the nub of before determining whether this was a viable opportunity or not?
1: a few and yeah coming up with like a qualifier checklist like there are some that are commercially available like if any of your listeners are members of the four a's the american association of advertising agencies they have a great like pre-qualifier checklist for new business so you can check that out and other people have made them as well but a big one is do you have access to the decision maker and that's not always evident right at the beginning of the pitch typically speaking for me in most of the pitches i was in if i was talking to the vp of marketing the CMO, even sometimes at a bigger company, like a brand director or even like a brand manager could be like they're there's the one sort of running the pitch. They're not the decision maker, but like they have pull in it or they are helping run the review. But really, eventually, even if you start with a brand manager, like you've got to get to the VP of marketing or the director of marketing or whoever is going to be the one that decides because things will happen where like you go to participate in a review and you get all the way to the end of like the final pitch. And it's like oh, the CMO couldn't make it today. Oh, the VP of marketing couldn't make it today. You know right then you've lost because they didn't think it was an important enough meeting to come to to hear your pitch. You are not going to win that pitch if they're not in the room. That just means they already heard it from the incumbent or the person they wanted to win and they opted out of coming to your meeting because you're not going to win. And so they, like, they it's your job to like make sure you're not that straw man in the room that you have no shot of winning because that's, that's just like a burn of your resources. So... Who is the decision maker? Like ask that question at the beginning. Who's the decision maker on this pitch? Is it a committee? Is it a department? Sometimes procurement is involved too. That's a whole different style of review that has to do with costing. And then I could go on. But yeah, who, is, who are participating in the decision of who gets hired? Because if you can't get that question answered, it could also very well be a fishing expedition. Like there could be, you could go do a, I've done whole reviews where no one won at the end because all they were really looking for was free ideas. And, co- and and free ideas of what this would cost and then the whole thing at the end of it is they create stand up an in-house agency instead you know so it's like yes i know we're shaking our business no, but it happens it happens it happens and then also you should ask up front what the payment terms are because Ooh. before you go all the way down the end like you've probably seen this whole thing with i'm going to call them right out snapple dr Pepper, dr pepper snapple keurig That whole company, 360 day payment terms, that is one year. So you're going to work on their business for an entire year before they pay you. Agencies, you are not a bank, period. You are not a company's bank. I don't care how cool of a company is. I don't care if it's Nike or Target or whoever you think is the shit that you want to work for. You are not a bank. You are doing work for them that they need. They need to pay you like maximum net 90, If anybody comes with 120, I would negotiate that. That's too much too. Net 90 is the max I would accept.
2: So when you're coaching businesses, and we're going to talk about your business soon, and this has been exciting, therapy meets reminiscing for me. (laughs) When you're coaching new founders or business owners, this idea of net terms, it's so weird because like every day people get up, go to work, they get paid every two weeks. And the minute I'm a consultant, the minute I'm a business, the minute I'm not an employee, there's 90-day things happen. And six, I still got to eat while I'm working on you. And so I've I've met a lot of really rich entrepreneurs that are cash poor. And all it takes mm-hmm. is one little thing and their terms go back or whatever. So maybe this is a great way to segment into your business and how you support. But I'd love for you to touch on How do companies focus on sort of winning that customer trust that you don't pay me 90 days out, 180 days out? I'm not looking for every two-week payment because I'm not an employee, but people got to eat. People got to be reasonable.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my clients, there's like three ways I get paid, or maybe four. So there's some things that I need like an immediate payment on. Like, for example, if I already got started working on your business, like there was an immediate need for me to start right away because it was time-sensitive. I might invoice you a month later and say, due on receipt for the month of work I just did for you, you know? So in that situation, the work has already been done. So you're paying now, but the work has been completed. That's one way you can do it. You can do net 15, you know, you can do net 30, you could take something and like break it out. You can obviously do a retainer where it's like the same amount of money every month and then you can do it net 15 or net 30. I think either is like pretty acceptable, especially if you have a runway for your business. Like you shouldn't, net 30 shouldn't kill you. That's pretty normal. Like give people 30 days to pay your invoice. So I'm fine with that. And if people ask for net 30, no problem. Sometimes I'll do net 90, but it's usually on commission-based stuff. So like some of my clients, I have a commission or call it a finder's fee, whatever. But if I've connected you with an opportunity that you win, say it's worth $100,000 and I have a 10% commission on that, then you're gonna pay me $10,000 of that, but I'll give you 90 days to pay me that amount because it's a big chunk. And like, say I helped you win a million dollar piece of business. Now you owe me $100,000. Okay, well, your client, you have to get them ramped up and started. They have to start paying you. I don't know what their payment terms are. They might be net 30, 60, 90. It should not be more than 90. So like, and then even that, okay, if I know I'm going to get a hundred thousand dollars for somebody, I can set up a payment plan for that. Like if, cause I'm working with small businesses, if you're like, well, I'd like to spread out that hundred thousand dollars over six months, like, okay, cool. If I know what that's going to be like, that's fine. And especially we have an ongoing relationship, like no problem. So I think you can be creative. I'm always talking about like how to get creative with how you're compensated, especially as an entrepreneur, but like Also protect yourself, like don't do work for free because like, then you leave yourself in danger of like being ghosted by somebody and having done the work and not been paid for it.
0: Nora, tell us about your business. I think, you know, we've spoken (laughs) so much now, you've given so much valuable advice around marketing, but introduce your business.
1: Give us the elevator pitch. (laughs) Well, it's really funny because my business is called Pitcher. So everyone's always expecting me to pitch them like immediately, like pitch me, pitch me on Pitcher. So Pitcher is a brand strategy and growth consultancy for small businesses and how I define small businesses because there's many definitions is under $25 in annual revenue. So this is the size of business that I could never work for or with when I was at an agency, even what would be considered a small agency, because the way agencies are structured, the kind of overhead they carry, the kind of payroll they carry. They cannot make it work for small businesses of that size, for startups, for series A, B, C, seed. They cannot do it. So what would happen is when I was at the agency and the bigger I helped them grow, the bigger the type of contract we would need to bring in. So it just sort of, it all escalates, right? So we would have these great startups because I'm in Pittsburgh, which is like a robotics epicenter because of Carnegie Mellon University. So we have robotics companies coming all the time. Like really cool, like indoor vertical farming, like hydroponic aeroponic, but using robotics. Like there was this company fifth season I spoke to so many times and they'd be like, okay, we're in series B now we have this much money or we're in series C now we have this much money. And still we couldn't make it work because like maybe their maximum was 50 or a hundred thousand dollars and our minimum was $250,000. There's just no way to make that work. Like that's a chasm you can't cross. And I was always trying to get creative. Like I said, and I'd be like to my leadership team, like, Oh, come on guys. Like, SWAT team, like just me and a creative director, no. How about a sandbox team? Just the junior people, like just give them something cool to work on that they're excited about, no. Okay, how about just me, no. Pitch the Fortune 500, pitch bigger stuff because they wanna grow, they wanna get bigger, I get it. it. It's not their priority to like help the little guys. No problem, I get that that's your business model, but I always wanted to help small businesses. That was like where my passion was. Okay, fast forward to the pandemic, now I'm pitching really big pieces of business like Procter & Gamble, Papa John's, big billion dollar companies. This is amazing. This is amazing that this like small 50 person shop in Pittsburgh is pitching Procter & Gamble. OK, like that's wild. However, <laughs> my I have two little kids, they're six and three, their dance studio is closing their art studio is closing. Their favorite boutique is closing. Their bookstore is closing. These are all woman-owned businesses, mom-owned businesses in my community. I know a lot of these owners personally. I've been frequenting their shops for five years and they're closing forever and I'm pitching billion-dollar companies. Like, What is wrong with that equation right there? And I, I call it my Bertie Sanders moment because I was just like, I opt out like goodbye. Like I like I I talk about entrepreneurs like. Like I talk about in like two different camps, accidental entrepreneurs, which a lot of people have been experiencing lately because you get laid off, right? You just find yourself jobless all of a sudden and you have to hustle and you have to freelance and then you're like, damn, I'm actually making more money than I thought I would. And this is actually more fun and better. Okay, so you've got your accidental entrepreneurs. Then you have people like me that I call YOLO entrepreneurs that are like, I have an idea and I'm out. Bye. (laughs) So I quit. I quit my job to start Pitcher in October of 2021.
2: Man. So so we get on this podcast as three agency folks, what you just said, the folks that are just starting off or a year in. Let's further define what is brand strategy work and what is growth consultancy because i think a lot of people need them but they don't know what it actually means to even know they need it so i'm a client i got a cool startup three years old i think i need brand strategy work and i could use some growth support how do you execute that
1: yeah so usually people don't know that their brand is a mess it's like a dumpster fire you don't know you have they think my logo is cute it's good a lot tons of entrepreneurs stand up a business out of necessity desire a moment in time an opportunity and they just slap it up there and like that works for a while sometimes like if your idea is good enough your product's good enough it kind of does sometimes it doesn't matter and there's a lot of discussion in the tech world like you know we don't need branding who needs branding we have a we have a mvp we have a an app like stand it up call it whatever it doesn't matter make it black and white like make the logo bigger smaller whatever So, but the problem is eventually your brand will matter. And if you have not built it from the beginning or you stood something up and you gave it a a difficult, hard to pronounce or spell name, it's gonna bite you in the end or sometime at some point. So it is critical to build the brand correctly from the beginning. Ideally, if you didn't do it because you didn't know how to and you just stood something up fast, then you might need a rebrand, a repositioning, a rethink on it. And then maybe your brand is fine but you're just not promoting it. It's not getting to the right people in the right place at the right time. Like that's all about media and content strategy, right? Like where is my audience and where is my audience now and who is my audience? So typically my clients have one or more of those challenges when they come to me, but the way it presents itself is we're not growing at the rate we want to be growing or we were growing and we no longer are or we're a startup and we want to grow, but we don't know how and with who. So that's why I kind of talk about it as a growth consultancy because you wouldn't be coming to me if you were growing or growing at the pace you wanted to. And the problem is, it's very hard to see the forest through the trees. Like, it's very hard for founders to diagnose their own problems. It's why every coach has a coach. It's why every therapist has a therapist. Like, you make those jokes, but it's true because you can't see your own issues, you're too close to them. So I'm like a neutral third party that can come in and be like, okay, you're not growing. Why? What was your revenue the last two years, five years, however long you've been in business? When did it dip off? What kind of hole are we talking about? Do you have a million dollar hole to fill? Do you have a half a million dollar hole to fill? Like what what's going on? A lot of that was created by the pandemic. So like there were a lot of like pandemic holes that our, my businesses or companies I work with are facing. So that can be one challenge. Sometimes it's like we've just been coasting along for a long time at two to three million a year and that's okay. But we now we have a desire to grow. We have a desire to scale this, sell it. I mean, if you're not growing, you're dying. So everyone should want to grow. Like if you're a founder and you don't want to grow, you may not be a founder for very long. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, so everyone needs to grow. And that's why I think this is a good business model. And I'm interested to hear what you guys think about my, my business model and my like long-term vision for it. But yeah, every, everyone needs to grow. And all small businesses need help to grow. And guess where they're not going to get it from is agencies.
2: I think you're you're bang on in, in what you're trying to help with. Those are the two things that I think ninety nine percent of small businesses I've had the pleasure of supporting in my short little in between one gig to another, where I was like, I want to be a consultant and I realize I'm not cut out to be a consultant or I just I, I just need to pick one idea and do it all day and that's just my like comfort zone. But this idea of understanding what a brand means to them, because most of these new folks They think a brand is really just a logo. Like, I've got my logo. Somebody in Upwork or Fiverr made it. Yay. Like, I'm good. Now, why are the sales coming, right? So I think bridging that the brand is really the thing that's going to create the credibility to now help you win business. I think it's fantastic. You're in a beautiful, sweet spot.
1: Well, it's interesting. I'm I'm not going to attribute this to the right person because I forget who said it. I'm horrible at, like, quotes or movie quotes or book quotes. I'm like something like this I don't know who said it but basically like a brand is not what you say it is a brand is what your customer says it is to them because what it really is is like it's a psychological emotional connection to what you put out in the world and does that resonate or not and so that's why a logo does not emotionally resonate with anyone you have to put the story behind it you like the whole Simon Sinek start with why golden circle you got to put the why behind it like why should people give a shit about you and your brand and your company or your founder story or whatever? Like, why should they care? There's a million brands in the world. Why yours? Why am I going to give that my time of day when I'm scrolling through through the feed? Why am I going to stop and pay attention to you? Because everyone, like newsflash, everyone cares about themselves. They do not care about you. They don't don't care about your brand. They only care about it if it means something to them and if it can do something for them.
0: Laura, from my perspective, you've entered into Quite a competitive space, and you've taken on a market segment that needs to be serviced because I don't think there are enough people servicing the small business sector. But those people are more concerned about cash flow, day to day running of the business. They don't necessarily see the value in investing in a brand strategy. So, how do you overcome those obstacles, both the competitive market space and an audience that doesn't understand that they need to invest? in their brand strategy in order to grow
1: okay i'll break that down because it's two questions so i'll speak to the competitive market i'm one of those people that doesn't see anybody as my competition like i was not into competitive sports growing up like i'm not a competitive person like i'm a person that feels like everyone there's enough going on that everyone can get theirs like like even pitching like i never really worried about the other agency that is competing again yes we were pitching we were obviously competing but like what they were doing was irrelevant to me. Like, who cares who's also in it? Like people be like obsessed with like, who is it? But what, what does it matter? Like that what they say is not going to change what we say. We have to come like as ourselves, right? So I don't see anybody as my competition. And here's why. The, if you look at the U.S. Small Business Administration's data, there are 32.5 million small businesses just in the United States. Wow. That represents 99.9% of all businesses in the country. The other 0.1% are all the big businesses. That's who all the agencies are competing for. So there may be like, I don't know, three, 4,000 agencies competing for 10 20,000 big businesses, including the Fortune 500. Over here on the other side is 32.5 million small businesses. Who is helping them? Who is helping those people? It's very decentralized. There's no like Look up the four A's and look at their ad agency database and pick one of those to help your big business. On the small business side, what do you have? Upwork, Fiverr. I'm not saying there aren't good people that are qualified, talented, Behance, Dribble, all of those are great platforms, but that's not a vetted platform. Like nobody on there is vetted except by like maybe their reviews that they have from past clients. But like you could have a good review and still do a bad job on my project. Like, When you go to an agency, what the benefit of what you're getting is that that is vetted talent like that agency wouldn't have hired those people. They would not have hired that talent if they weren't qualified to do the job. So, you know, you're getting vetted talent when you go to a platform like Upwork or Fiverr. You don't know if they're vetted like they can say I'm a copywriter. But like, is that a copywriter by an agency standard? Might, maybe, maybe not. So I think there's a this is like my gap analysis and sort of my thesis for the business is like there is a gap where like big businesses plus agencies equal success, small businesses plus blank equals success. Like, what is that? And basically it's other small businesses. It's like the me's, the you's, the people that like bailed out of their agency and started their own small thing. But they're still on paper called an agency, but it's a very different kind of an agency. That's not who you're going to find on the 4A's website. That's who you're going to find word of mouth right now. But like, could there be a platform? Could there be a centralized spot that you could go to find that vetted talent? That's the long-term vision for Pitcher that I'm trying to like think through. And I am not a technologist. So like, if you were like, how do you make that app? I'd be like, I don't know. Phone a friend. Satish, help. (laughs) Tech person, help. But like, but I have a vision for like what it could be. And, I, and again, I'm just talking about the United States, 32.5 million businesses. What about India? What about China? What about Europe? What about Africa? What about South America? I mean, now we're talking about the whole world. Oh, in a lot of other countries, big business is not what dominates. Small, small business is what dominates, just like in our country. So now it's been interesting because I'm starting to work with people in the UK and Canada. And I talked to a founder in Guatemala this week. I talked to a founder in Morocco. So the idea of... Some organization helping small businesses grow and succeed is resonating with people. Now, how do I make it a bigger thing?
2: How are you doing your own marketing? Are you Link- doing the hunting or do you have a team that works on it? And I'm asking because selfishly, I'm curious because I'm sitting on like the customer side now. I've got a three-year-old tech startup. We are talking to homeschooling moms. We're talking to parents across the country who lost Confidence in the public education system. We've got a fantastic product that allows anybody to school their kids however they want. We give you the whole thing. We go down the staffing route. We're getting eight hours a day minus the coffee break and the lunch break and the holidays. And it's cool, good, dependable. They show up every day. But as a fast-growing startup, it's hard to to scale that. Go and try to find agency partners, smaller folks, Upwork, whatever. And the person on the first phone call is a great pitch, account lead is like, wow. And then the work gets tossed into a cycle and it's always disappointing. How do people find the right option for them, right? And like, when would you walk away because you're not a fit?
1: Oh, I have that conversation all the time. Like almost every call starts with, are you sure you want to hire me? (laughs) Because I'm trying to figure out, like, am I the right fit for you? Because there's a lot of like gurus, charlatans, snake oil salespeople on the internet. And you ask me, where am I marketing? I'm marketing on LinkedIn. Like I, I pick one rabbit hole at a time. And right now it's LinkedIn. Although it's chock full of ads at the moment that I'm a little unhappy about. So maybe I'll get on my soapbox about that in a minute. But yeah, I I would say to to that point, like I have hired 1099s to support my business when there's an opportunity like that, where it's like, okay, I'll give you an example. I just talked to a streetwear company this week and I, that's not like, I'm not the target. Like that's my favorite phrase in new business. You are not the target because 99.9% of the time, whatever you're pitching you will not personally enjoy or eat or use or whatever in your life. Like, there was one week where I was pitching matcha, or like hard cider. It was all beverages. I can remember this distinctly matcha, hard cider, hard apple cider, and aquavi, which is like sort of like a Jaeger Meister. It's like a Norwegian spirit that has like juniper and cardamom and stuff in it. And I was like, I am not the target of any of these beverages. And I was talking, I was talking to the matcha guy on the phone and it was like a partnership with a designer. And he goes, Oh, do you, what do you think, designer dude, about matcha? He's like, I love it. I make it every morning. I love the ritual of whisking. And he's like, Nora, what do you think about matcha? I like, I think that shit is gross. I would never drink that. And so it's like, it's actually good though. It's good to not be the target because it biases you. Like if you're the target, like what people you're okay, you're pitching like a taco company and they're like, and you're like, I do taco Tuesday every Tuesday. I am a, I am the target of these tacos. It's like, no, you're not. Like, there is some other target. It's probably not you. Or like, I drink coffee every morning. I'm the target of this coffee. mate. no, you're not. Because there's all these like sub segments of the target. And there's like, it's like a bullseye. It's like, who is like your best target is in the middle. That maybe like the million or 2 million people that are the best. Then it's the next ring out. That might be 5 million. Then the next ring out might be like 20 million. But you only have so many media dollars. So you need to hit the bullseye with those media dollars. That's who you need to be like your early movers, your people who like adopt the brand early. And then you can scale it out once those people buy it, because they're the easiest to convert, then you'll have more money to convert the people that are harder co- to convert. So that's just kind of like, you know, media 101. But yeah, I'm always like preaching like you're not the target. So I'm always when people come to me and they so this guy was telling me about his streetwear company, I was like, He was mentioning like some people in the NFL and the NBA that have worn it. And it's like, he must, he could have been talking about like scientists or like, or anybody literally he's dropping names. And I'm like, I don't know who that person is. Like, I I also don't know who that person is. Like, so my college roommate called it sports ball. She's like any sport with a ball is sports ball. And so like, I don't watch sports ball. so, So he's talking NFL and NBA and I'm just like crickets, like literal crickets. I was like, I don't know who any of those people are. I'm so sorry. And like he used to play basketball, a college level basketball. And I was like, I went to one college basketball game at Pitt where I went undergrad and I had to leave about five minutes in because the squeaky sneakers on the basketball court is my nails on a chalkboard sound. So like, I cannot watch a live basketball game, nor can I like watch it on TV with the sound on. Like if I have, if I'm watching it, I have to mute it. So so this guy is so not my target. Like he's a basketball player that runs a streetwear company that selling to the NBA and the NFL players. And I was like, whoa, I really need to connect to with Andrew Bailey. Who's my friend in Brooklyn who has worked for complex magazine and has worked on new balance and has worked on streetwear. I was like, you and Andrew, like hit it up, like talk about this because like he will, he will be able to help you and I won't. And so I'm always like, it's so funny. Cause it's like, right. Like, the antithesis of business development. Like if someone calls you and wants to work with you, the thought process in most people's minds would be like, how do I convince them to work with me? Like, how do I win this? And I'm usually like, how do I find out if I could actually help them? And I feel like most of the times I probably can't because I can only work on so many things at a time. So like, why would I spin my wheels working on something I know nothing about and like don't have anything of value to contribute if I could put them in touch with somebody else who could do a much better job? And I'll just take 10% finders fee on that. Enjoy.
2: love that. That confidence is is super good. Most of us want to take everything I can and then figure out how to get it done.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, yeah.
0: I was listening to a podcast not so long ago, and I can't remember the person's name, but their strategy, sales strategy, is to convince people not to use them. And they will actually say similar to what you've done there. They will say, "I don't think I'm a good fit for you." And he's saying, "What's interesting is the client or the prospect tries to convince him why he's a good fit, and yes, his conversion, his conversion is a lot higher using that approach than if he tries to pitch them that he's a good fit for their business."
1: What? Weird. Weird. It happens to me all the time. Exactly what you just said, Dion. So. So even though I'm telling, okay, this happened last year. I worked on some robotics projects. It was the first time I'd ever worked on robotics. And the founder, it was three founders of this company. They had spun out of Uber ATG, which is like was Uber's self-driving division, and that was all headquartered in Pittsburgh. So I'm talking to Julie Darins, who is the founder of TBD Robotics, and she goes, "Oh well, we spun out, and, and we need the marketing help. We think, or and my friend Beth Anderson was working on their design." And she called me and she was like nora it's a robotics company and they like the color blue help that's not a strategy i don't know what to do with that and so i had a phone call with julie and we were talking and i go you know what julie i'm sorry but like robots beep boop i don't know anything about robots like literally none i know i know what they are but i've never worked on them i don't know anything about them i don't know how i would possibly like market this and she goes well i mean i have a phd in robotics and you have some kind of degree in marketing, and I don't have a degree in marketing. So I think if we work together, like I can teach you about the robots, but you maybe you can teach me about the marketing. And it's true, right? It's like while you are off getting your PhD or master's or whatever, and whatever you're good at as a founder, you're probably not also getting a marketing degree. So you need other people to help you. And like, I love that concept of zones of genius. And I don't know who came up with that, but I hear coaches talk about it all the time. And some of my coaches talk about it, but like, you can only be a genius at so many things. Yep. Like, you. Like I'm only a genius at three things. Brand strategy, growth, and inbound marketing. That's it. I know nothing about HR. I know nothing about IT. I know nothing about finance. I know nothing about ops. I'm a terrible project manager. I mean, the list goes on. Like, of all the things that, a, like, in an agency, you need to, like, run the show. Or as a founder, you need to run your own show. So the first thing I did was outsource my finance stuff because I would be... Trying to write an invoice and it would take me hours, just one invoice. And I was like, "This is insane." I mean, I could charge people five hundred dollars an hour. Like, I've got to be able to get a bookkeeper for less than five hundred dollars an hour. So, like, there's an ROI right there. So, yeah. So now my my bookkeeping slash contract CFO is five hundred dollars a month. I don't have to do that anymore. Great, off my plate. So. Not that everybody is in that position when you're just starting out as a founder, but the the second that someone will pay you money to do what you're good at and you have enough money to outsource the things you suck at, do that and then do more of free yourself up, free up more time to do what you're good at. That's the game. That's the whole game. And that's like how I mean, how any company scaled with people, I guess, is to like think about what you are not uniquely good at and what other people could add in terms of value and bring those people in. Right. Or or partner out if you're doing like a 1099.
0: And I think that's a perfect segue. So you talk about you, you can't be a genius in everything, right? So, and you've spoken about outsourcing some of these functions. One of the questions that I'd asked that we'd sent out and I'd actually like you to, to give us the answer online so that people on air so that people can actually hear is what tools or, or software that are you using in your early stages that you find have been really beneficial to your organization?
1: Yeah. So right now I'm back to just a solo. I'm just myself. Well, plus one, I have an intern page that's started to help me in the last couple of weeks. It's happening. It's It's happening. happening. At one point earlier last year, I did have a couple of 1099s. I had one W2. We can talk later about why that didn't work out if we have time. But yes. So the tools that really helped me, because again, like efficiency, you only have so much time. A lot of what I'm doing is like discovery calls, booking meetings, trying to meet founders, see if I'm a good fit for them, like we talked about. So a lot of my stuff centers around booking meetings. So Calendly has been huge because I work with people in every time zone of the United States and I work with people in other countries too. So the amount of time you lose having a back and forth email exchange of like, wait, what time zone are you in? And trying to convert your calendar time to their time zone is massive. We used to do that before Calendly existed. And I swear to God, it took probably hours out of my week just to just to do that math and uh, have like a chart up, like what time is it where? Like just so that Calendly takes all of that or any calendar scheduling. I that's one I use, but you could use another one. There's plenty of them, but and most of them are very affordable. Some of them are even free. So you can look around and find like whether you want to do free or subscription, but very affordable. And that just again, that frees up your time. Like what is your time worth to you or what could you be selling your time for working on a a paid project? And so that's really super easy because people will be like, hey, can we get a meeting to talk about blah, blah, blah? And I'll be like, yeah, do you want to check out my calendar link and see what works with your schedule? The other great thing about it is I'm a mom, like I mentioned. So my daughter gets on the bus at 8.35 and she gets off at 3.42. So I set my calendar to only be available the first hour of the day, I just need like time to just like do my thing and just get oriented. So I set it for 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. Eastern. So I've got a little bit of breathing time before and after she gets on the bus and gets off or is about to get home. So I'll tell people like, hey, my calendar is only bookable from 10 to 3 Eastern. But if you need something earlier, or later based on your time zone, then we can talk about that. But otherwise, like book it yourself. Like I'm not gonna go back and forth with you on email because also that just like, from a business development standpoint, that's just one more email that they're going to lose in their inbox, not follow up on, not convert on. It's like if they could just go boop and like pick it, then... So there you go. Shout out Calendly. And then once i book the call, then I need to have the call. So Zoom has been helpful. I mean, there's lots of other platforms that one of my friends uses, Whereby. And of course, there's Google Meet. I started with Google Meet, but the problem is I'm a tab queen. Like I have a million tabs up at once. And Google Meet is not happy about that because it's like it's, it's like, it doesn't load. It's not app-based. So, so that was frustrating. And also like the recording features like aren't as great. It's not as like intuitive. So I, so I love Zoom. And then something I've integrated with Zoom recently is Fathom AI, which is an AI note taker. So I noticed like all of my clients were using these AI note takers. I'm like, okay, well, I don't want to be the last idiot that like, is it using AI for note taking? And so I demoed it and it's free right now, at least. So that's a cool free one you can test out. And basically, it will give you a transcription of your call. And a lot of what I'm doing is like stakeholder interviews. Like I'm interviewing founders, like, why aren't you growing? What's going on? What's wrong? Show me your financials. Let me talk to your team. Let me talk to your clients. So I might be doing eight or 10 of these interviews. And if I'm not recording like these notes or I don't have a note taker doing it for me, then I'm typing 80 words a minute. I'm a fast typer, but like, I'm like typing furiously while I'm listening to them. I'm not making eye contact with them. I'm not developing a relationship or making them at ease. So that's problematic. So now I don't do that. I'll just like still out of the corner of my eye, like jot a few like scratch notes on a notepad, but I let the AI note taker take it all. And then when I need to go back and like pull verbatims out of it, it's transcribed the whole thing. So I can just copy and paste it. So like stuff like that, like tools that help with whatever the thing is that you do as a founder, like with your efficiency, take things off your plate that just frees you up to do more of what you're really good at.
2: Excellent. Adam AI, dude. We need that. and I talk all the time. Like, what did we just...
0: <laughs> and then, Nora, the last question is, based on your experience both in formal employment and now as an entrepreneur, what life skills or... Yeah, what life skills have you learned that you think someone should learn at some point in their life?
1: Oh... I mean, the number one thing is to be a good writer, develop your writing skills. And I know this is like a big debate with the whole chat GPT thing and and AI. We could go on about this, but I was just having a coffee this morning with an agency founder. His name is Rob Pisica. He has an agency called Jukebox. And we had this whole debate and conversation about how to use AI and how to use AI to like advance and just like get the ball rolling, get ahead. And there's a like a hot debate going on in agencies, especially among creatives, like is this okay to use? Is it not okay to use? Should we be using it? It takes away. Does it take away from the craft or degrade the craft? And so, so there's people on on both sides of it, right? But tell me your question again, Dion, because sometimes I lose track when I'm like, what None are we talking of, about? I'm... You, the, <laughs> the way you phrase the question, tell me again.
0: So it was, what life's lesson or skill have you learned lesson. that someone, everyone should learn at some point in their life?
1: Okay. Writing. I went off on an AI tangent, but it was about writing. Okay. So I grew up before AI. I also grew up before the internet. Like I didn't have the internet in my home until I was a teenager. Like, I think I was just about to go to college. I was like, oh my God, we got AOL instant messenger. This is amazing. But literally up until then, my computer was like a glorified typewriter. It was just a word processor with a printer attached that I could like write my school papers on. So I lived pre-internet and pre-cell phone like most of my childhood and so you had to write like you had to learn how to write you had to learn grammar there was no such thing as grammarly like get out of here like you had to actually learn grammar (laughs) sentence structure so like so I'm a big writing person and then my major in college was communication and rhetoric and basically we read like all the philosophers dissertations and all of their speeches and then we wrote essays and Papers about them. Like, I rarely had a test in college. Like, most of it was write a 10 page paper on this prompt. And so I got, I've always loved writing. I've always loved writing stories, like nonfiction, fiction. I love reading. I actually thought I was going to go into publishing, but then I did a publishing internship and it was like slow as molasses. It was just so boring. I was like, wait, it takes years to get a book published. Are you kidding me? Like, where's the fast version of that? And so then one of my professors steered me towards agencies because she was like, I think you'll like an agency better. It's a much faster pace. You see your work get produced. So writing, writing is huge. Like if you're afraid of writing, if you don't like it, if you don't like it, then maybe chat GPT could help you because it could help prompt your writing. Like you could use it to give you some prompts and get you going, get a first draft written. For those that like to write, keep developing your writing skills and you'll develop them your whole life. But for me, LinkedIn has been really good for that because I've been able to just like Almost use it like a professional journal. Like just what's on my mind right now. It could be like one sentence. It could be a whole several paragraph thing. But like keep writing, like put it out there, write every day. Some people are like write every single day as a practice. Like I don't force myself. To, I mean, I'm writing all the time for work, but like write and write and write more. And then like when you're not writing, give yourself a break and like read and research. Like research is huge. Like, Learning how to research effectively It's a huge skill that you can, you can use in almost any profession, but definitely, like I said, being a curious person, learning how to ask good questions, learning how to interview somebody, learning how to be interviewed, and then also learning how to present with confidence because I remember being that account executive early in my career and getting up to pitch and like literally shaking, like literally like feeling it in your body. Like I'm so nervous. I'm so nervous. I grew up singing like my, I didn't say in my background, but my family is very musical. And so I knew how to sing on stage and that I was never nervous. Cause like I knew the music, I knew the lyrics, I could deliver that, but I, I was so nervous to present. And so I think people who don't present often and don't get comfortable with it, you have a tendency to like use your notes as a crutch, use your slides, yeah. read off the slides. But when you really know that material And like if you ever saw like when Steve Jobs like would present and everything at Apple, he'd just have one picture up. There would be no notes. There would be no nothing. One picture at a time because he knew what he wanted to say. He had rehearsed it. He had practiced it. He practiced the pitch. And so that's the best kind of presentation. That's the most engaging. It's like why TED has become so popular. Like people love TED Talks is because that person has really, really practiced their story and their pitch and they're so comfortable delivering it. Even if they don't say it exactly like they had practiced it they're getting the the story across and like the energy of the story is being communicated so yeah so write research read and become comfortable presenting those are things that people i think in any field can benefit from
2: brilliant
0: nora i tell you what this has probably been one of the most practical episodes we've ever had i've been taking notes the whole time yeah the amount of advice that our listeners are going to get from this episode is really significant so Nora, I would love to thank you for your time. It's absolutely been great chatting to you. If people would like to find out more about you, follow you, read up on your business, where would they
1: go? They would find me on LinkedIn. So yeah, look for me there and then you'll find my company picture. It's the one with the lemon. There is another picture in Switzerland, I believe does not look the same as my brand, although I'm in like a trademark thing, trying to trademark right now, the USPTO. That's a whole other topic. That's very, very interesting. But yes, so I'm not pitcher.com. I'm pitchergrowth.com. But my site is very laughable. It's just like a landing page form fill. Like it's a joke amongst all my web friends. Like this is the worst website I've ever seen. So maybe don't go to my website unless you just want to fill out a form because you need help to grow. But if you want to see what I talk about and what kind of content I write about, then come find me on LinkedIn.
2: Excellent. That's awesome. That's the perfect, don't call me, call me message. There you go.
0: Don't go to my website. (laughs) And what's going to happen? There's going to be an influx of inquiries coming to Nora's website. Brilliant. And then they're going to
1: be like, oh, you're right. This is really bad. Why did I come here?
2: (laughs)
0: Excellent. Well, thanks very much, Nora. Once again, really appreciate it.
2: Year One is hosted by Dion Kloppers and Suthish Bala and does not constitute a recommendation for any organization, product, or service. It is engineered by BloomX. For more Year One content subscribe where you get your podcasts and visit BloomX.io to join us on Discord.